you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter three. Um, look at this passage of scripture. I've only got just a few minutes to, to kind of break this down for you, but this is one of those familiar passages that we often walk right by. Sometimes it's relegated to the children's ministry of a church because, well, that's just the story of Nicodemus. John three sixteen, and we overlook the profundity of this passage. This was a mind-blowing experience for Nicodemus. He had never heard these things before. And this is kind of the disadvantage that you and I have being New Testament saints is that we know how this story ends. Nicodemus did not. The disciples did not. They don't know how this ends. They're leaving it in real time. John is writing this with the advantage of being in the future. He's writing the historical event. So he's able to formulate all this together. But during the life and ministry of Christ, they didn't know what you know. And it's important to put that back within the context. Because if you look at John chapter 2, verse 23, that kind of gives us an idea of what was going on in the life of Nicodemus. Do you see it right there? It says, while he was in Jerusalem, the he being Jesus, at the Passover festival. We talked about this last week. This is a huge event. Thousands of people have filled Jerusalem. Many trusted in Jesus' name when they saw the signs he was doing. And that was the purpose of the signs. Jesus wasn't just doing miracles to do miracles. He was doing miracles to draw attention to his message. The message was always the most important thing, not the miracle. It was the message. And so they were trusting in him and what he was doing. They hadn't quite grasped the message yet. They will, but not yet. And so they're watching all this taking place. And Jesus gives a, John gives a commentary on Jesus in verse 24. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, that is, to those people, since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's an important contextual clue. He knows what's going on in the lives of the people around him. He knows their hearts. He knows their minds. He knows their stories. He knows their struggles. He knows their victories. And he not just knew it then, he knows it now. Don't try to hide. He knows what you're struggling with. He knows what you're going through. He knows the victories you're having. He knows the, the scary moments you faced this last week. He knows the scary moments you might face next week. He knows you. He knows your motives. He knows how you try to hide it. He knows what's going on inside of your life. He simply knows. So that's the context of John chapter three. It kind of gives us an insight to how Jesus treats Nicodemus because look how it's phrased. It says in verse one, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Named Nicodemus, he was a ruler of the Jews. Let's break that down just for a moment. This man from the Pharisees is a man named Nicodemus. I love the name Nicodemus. If you have a little boy, you're gonna get to name him. Name him Nicodemus. It means victorious people. Uh, Nike is the name from the Greek. Nike, Odemus people, victorious people. That's his name. It's kind of funny because he's a Jew and they're under the suppression of the Romans. And so while it says victorious people, he's not quite living the victorious life. He's got Rome all around him, but it's an optimistic power name. He is a victorious man. And so he's a man named Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's a Pharisee. Know a few things about the Pharisees. They were religiously conservative. You probably would identify with them. You probably would agree with them. They were men and women, were men of the common people. They were more democratic. They were the, the guys who were in the streets teaching. They were amongst the people. There was another group called the, San, the uh, Sadducees, and they were more about the temple. And so when Jesus cleans out the temple, he's really making a direct assault on the Sadducees. And so you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and then it says he's a ruler of the Jews. That's important. It seems redundant, Pharisee, and then ruler of a Jew. Well, as a Pharisee, he's a ruler of the Jews already. Why would he say it twice? Well, the 
ruler of the Jews probably meant that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was like the supreme court of religious life for the Jews. And so he was a part of this governing body of the Sanhedrin that's comprised of scribes, Sadducees, and Pharisees. And they'd all come together and they would make rulings regarding Jewish life. What's kosher, what's not. And reading of the Old Testament and, and uh, the great writers of the past. And they would have all of that. That's what he was a part of. So this is not just an entry-level Pharisee. This seems to be a Pharisee who's up in the upper echelons of pharisaical status and religious rule inside of Jerusalem. And so he is now coming to Jesus by night. And oftentimes it's looked at that and you thought, well, why is he coming at night? Was he afraid? Probably. Most likely he's a little nervous because he's one of these ruling class. And if he goes and sees Jesus, what are they going to say about him? So that could be part of it. It could also be it's cooler at night. Sometimes it's hot. And if you can sit on a patio at night, that's, that's a lot nicer. It could also be that he's a pretty busy guy and all the crowds go home at night. And so maybe it's this nighttime setting that he gets to have Jesus one-on-one. It's quiet. So Nicodemus' people get with Jesus' people and they set up a meeting to talk about this. And so notice how Nicodemus brings it up. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one could perform this, these signs you do unless God were with him. Notice a couple things. The signs are working. The signs are supposed to tell them where he's from. And so they're reading the signs right. Notice he uses the plural, we. Maybe he's speaking on behalf of the Sanhedrin or the religious leaders. Maybe he's just trying to hide. Maybe it's one of those academic things where he's just trying to quote people. We know, and so he's trying to sound profound. But he calls him rabbi, which is interesting too, because Jesus did not finish a rabbinical school. He's a teacher. And so he gives him a status that you would have to earn if you were Nicodemus. He gives him a, te- a status as a teacher, rabbi. It's kind of a lot of flattery. It's a lot of, a lot of fluff in this. One would think that Jesus would return that fluff with more fluff. Well, Nicodemus, I know you have a powerful name and you have a great study and you've done wonderful things as a Pharisee. And he would just kind of cheer him up and just kind of praise him a little bit. But Jesus doesn't, remember? He knows what's going on in the heart of all men. And so he almost sounds abrupt. Some of your translations will say, truly, truly. That's a King James, that's a uh, NASB. And the idea there is that Jesus is pointing to himself, and this is unique. Because you read that and go, why does he say truly, truly? My translation is the Holman. I, I assure you, he, Jesus is saying it, uh, this introductory phrase that kind of sounds a little cryptic. What does that mean? Well, in, when Nicodemus would speak, he would say, well, the other rabbi said this. And they would quote, this rabbi says that. And then this rabbi says this. And they would quote everybody. They would never give a direct quote themselves. And so when Jesus teaches, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. He points to himself as the source of authority. Remember, he is the word. The word became flesh. And so he points to himself and says, truly, truly, I say to you. And so it's a statement of authority. So whenever you see Jesus saying that, he's pointing to himself as authoritative in that message. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, as I read this, that kind of looks like it comes out of nowhere, does it not? It's like, what, what if all of a sudden we're talking about being born again in the kingdom of God? Where, where does this come from? What's happening here? Now, remember, Jesus knows what's going on in the hearts of men. So he knows what Nicodemus is wrestling with. Maybe Nicodemus is curious. He studied the law. He studied all these things. Maybe he doesn't know if he's getting into the kingdom. Maybe he doesn't know if he's been enough, done enough, worked enough. Maybe there's some insecurity there. It's kind of peculiar because... Well, he's a Pharisee. He's supposed to know, but maybe he doesn't know. 
Maybe he's a little worried about this. Maybe he's arrogant and he's thinking, Lord, please confirm what we all believe, that the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, those Romans, they don't get into heaven. Would you confirm that with us? Would you go ahead and make that so and just go ahead and put that to bed? Because that's kind of what we've been talking about as a Sanhedrin is who gets into the kingdom. And so Jesus comes at him straight to the heart. He says, unless you are born again, that could also be translated born from above, you cannot enter kingdom of heaven. And the idea of, or cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven line is referring directly to a kingdom, but it also can mean eternal life because Jesus will use those interchangeably. And so one would assume if you get to go to the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, then you would also have eternal life. So he's basically saying, unless you are born from above, you cannot have eternal life. Nicodemus hears this, <laughs> but verse four, how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him, can he enter into his mother womb a second time and be born? Now, it's kind of shocking that Nicodemus would use this tactic because Nicodemus was familiar with this concept of being born again. This was not new language for him. When somebody was converting from being a Gentile, from hedonism, from being a pagan and wanted to be a Jew, they would go through a series of lessons and a series of things, and then they would become, a, a, the proselyte would then be baptized and then be called a child again, would be born anew. So this phrase is not so much new to Nicodemus. It, this is a familiar concept to be born again. So why is he delaying? And my guess is this, because I've done this as a husband, and guys, you know you've done this too. Your wife will ask you something. Honey, did you pick up the, the laundry? And you heard her loud and clear. You heard what she said, and you went, what? Guys, have you done that? You're stalling, are you not? Yes, you're stalling. And I know students do this all the time. If you catch some kids doing something that they're not supposed to be doing, you'll say, hey, you need to bring that here. And they'll say, excuse me? They heard you. They're call, it's called delay tactics because you're looking for a way out. If the officer pulls you over, walks up to your window and says, do you know why I pulled you over? What do you say? I don't have no idea. You know exactly why you pulled, he pulled you over, do you not? You're delaying, hoping to get some favor or find a wiggle room, something. Okay, well, that's at least what I do on these things, trying to find a way out. So when Nicodemus says, how could this be? You can't do that. He's delaying. He's delaying, hoping to find a different answer. He's on his heels, his intellectual heels, his theological heels. He's wondering, what? I have to be born again? Is he talking about me? I have to be born again? Because he said, unless, notice verse three, unless you, someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Is he talking about me? I cannot? Wait, whoa, ha, I'm a Pharisee. I'm a Jew. I'm, I live by the law. I'm gonna see the kingdom of heaven. That's not what, what are you talking about? And so he delays in verse five. Jesus says it again, I assure you, truly, truly, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. See, there's your clue. Don't be amazed, you're being shocked. Don't, why are you so shocked? Don't be shocked that you have to be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear it sound and boy, howdy dewey, amen? It's supposed to be 30 mile an hour winds today. So when you see the wind today, think John three. And you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You see, Nicodemus lived in the world. He thought he could control all of that. We get to decide who gets to get into the kingdom of heaven. We decide who gets to have that. That's what we do. We're religious leaders. We're part of the Sanhedrin. And the Lord says to him, the Spirit decides that, not you. Nicodemus' mind is 
wait a minute. I've dedicated my life to this and I don't get to decide? No, you do not. You don't get to decide that. That is something the spirit in so nine, he says, Nicodemus says, how can these things be? How, how is this? And I love the answer the Lord gives here in verse 10. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know this? <laughs> you don't know what two plus two is and you teach math. <laughs> What's wrong with you? That's Jesus's tone here. Are you a teacher and you don't know these things? I assure you, he says it for the third time, truly, truly. And then notice how Jesus uses the we. We speak of what we know and we testified what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. And this is what the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they're wrestling with. They're not accepting Jesus. And Jesus puts his finger on that. You're not accepting me. Why? Because you don't get to determine who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't. The spirit does. We testify to all these things. If I had told you in verse 12 about these things that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you things on heaven? If I explain to you things that are familiar with you and you don't believe me, how am I going to explain to you things that are unfamiliar to you? You're not going to believe me then. You got to believe this to believe that. You don't believe me. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. And then he goes to Numbers 21. Jesus quotes or alludes to this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. This is the story of the venomous snakes in Numbers 21. The children of Israel were doing what they, were, what they do the best. It's what we all do the best. We are good complainers. Anybody have an advanced degree in complaining? We all do. We'll complain about something or somewhere or someone. It's just what we do. The children of Israel were exceptional at this, and so are we. And so they're complaining again to God, and God is fed up to hear with the complainers. And so he sends the snakes to go through the village or through the, the population, and everybody they bite dies. He kills the complainers, okay? You know, wipe them out. The people cry out. Moses is commanded by God to take a snake, to put it on a staff, and hold it up into the air. And if you looked at that staff, you would be healed. And Jesus takes that event and applies it to himself. And he says there, if the son of man, the, so the son of man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. I please rest assured, Nicodemus did not think crucifixion right there. He didn't go, oh, Jesus is going to be crucified and rise on the third day. He doesn't know that yet. All he knows is if you lift the name of Jesus up, the son of man, and people believe in him like they did in verse 23, they can be saved. Don't read too much into Nicodemus's mind about the resurrection and the church and all the things that we know. All that he knows is, oh, so just like when Moses lifted up the, the staff with the snake on it and people were healed, if you lift up the son of man, if you magnify Christ, Jesus, then you too can be healed and everyone has to look to Jesus. That's all that he knows. He doesn't know about a crucifixion. He just knows you have to believe in Jesus. That's all he knows. And then he gets a verse. A verse that you and I probably memorized when we were little. Probably can quote it real quick. Maybe you can join me. For God so loved the world, come on, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That was a revolutionary concept, Brother Nick. Had no idea about this verse. Think of what is being stated here. For God, the greatest being, 
the largest of things, the most supreme. If you can spend your time thinking about God, you are spending your time thinking about the highest, most elevated thought that a man could ever have. That's why theology is so important. It's the most magnifying, it's the most illuminating thought you can spend time thinking Thinking upon him, it lifts your mind, it lifts your brain, it, lifts, it opens up wisdom. It's an incredible thing to just ponder. For God, for God, notice what he does. The word so, don't walk by that as a throwaway verb. It's not. For God so, it's an adverb. For God so loved the world to the greatest degree. Not just kind of, you know, I kind of like roses. It's all right. I kind of like Taco Villa, which is not true. I don't like it at all. I kind of like that burger. I, that's kind of good. We like to say to like, today we like to use the word, well, it's not bad, which I don't know what that means. It's either good or it's bad. So why not just say it's good? But we like to say it's not bad. I'm trying to figure out the psychology behind that word. But it's not that he says, well, for God, yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah, the world, it's okay. I like it. I'm fond. I'm fond of that. I can do it. No, I, he so loved the world. It is the great exclamation point of the word love, which is the greatest emotion. For God, the greatest being, so to the greatest degree, love, the greatest emotion. The world, and I'm not talking about the globe, I'm talking about the humans that are walking around on the world. He so loved you, the world, and you're part of it. This is the God that Nicodemus thought was filled with wrath and laws and standards and rules. And if you don't do it this way, you're unclean and have to be thrown out. He says, no, for God so loved the world. And notice what love does. It gives. If you truly love something, you're going to give to it. It's just how life works. You're going to give either your money or you're going to give your time or you're going to give your energy. That's how it works. I can tell what you love by where you spend your time, where you spend your money, and what you spend your time thinking about. That's just how love works. And so when it comes to Valentine's Day, when it comes to giving gifts to your loved one, when you give them something special, it's conveying to them you love them. And the larger the gift, the more you love them. So a millionaire who buys her a cheap ring does not love her. He doesn't, and she knows it. But the man who buys that piece of jewelry for his beloved that cost him so much, he loves her. He's willing to give. For God so loved that he gave. Notice what he gives the most greatest treasure, his only begotten son, the greatest relationship, the greatest gift. That whosoever, this is the greatest company, it's open to anyone. And this blows Nicodemus's mind. He thought you had to be a Jew or at least go through the process of becoming a Jew. No, no. Whosoever, anyone, Jesus says to him, it's the greatest invitation and it's the concept of belief. It's a word that John loves. If you simply believe, people wrestle with this concept. You mean all I have to do is believe in Jesus? I go to heaven? Yes. Yes. Well, what if they go out and live terribly afterwards? That's not my problem. That sounds like dad's problem. Those of you who've grown up with other siblings, I have three other siblings. You know, one way to surely get yourself in trouble with mom and dad is when you try to parent your siblings. When you try to discipline your siblings, when you try to be the boss of them, what does your sibling say? You're not the boss of me. You know, that's what my mom, my sister and brothers would say. And I would say that to them. You know who's the best discipliner of the children? Mom and dad. And so when people ask me this question, well, so-and-so can go off and live like however they want. That sounds like a daddy problem, not a Bobby problem. 
That sounds like something that God's gonna have to take care of because if they're truly his, he'll take care of that. What I need to do is pray for my brother in Christ. I need to pray for my sister. I need to pray that God works. Because if they're truly his, God will, God will take care of his own. And so all you have to do is believe. All you do is believe in him, the greatest object of faith. And notice the greatest promise, the greatest deliverance shall not perish. That's a good word. You won't go to hell. You're with him forever. You shall not perish. And I know it's not referring to just a physical death, a temporary thing. It's referring to the lifelong or the eternal thing because of the next few words here, shall not perish. And notice the trait, but have the greatest assurance, eternal, the greatest promise, the greatest blessing is life. You have it forever. It's yours. How the mechanism is simple faith, belief in Christ. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ Jesus, he's yours. You see, Nicodemus comes with a heavy heart. And that's how Jesus wants you to come. He wants you to come with a heavy heart. Don't think you have to have it all figured out because you won't. All you have to do is come. He wants you to come with that heavy heart. He wants you to come and bring those questions because Jesus will answer them. He'll answer those questions. And what he really wants you to do is just have that simple faith in Christ. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so a takeaway from today is simple. You might be like Nicodemus and you're thinking, well, I'm gonna go talk to Jesus, but I don't wanna, I don't, I'm a little embarrassed of what I'm struggling with. Don't be, he knows. He already knows. Just lay that burden upon him. Peter will say, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. Don't worry about it. Just take it to him. And maybe you'll need to talk to somebody about that. And that helps an immense amount if you could just talk to somebody. And so bring that care to him. He's able and willing to answer all of your questions. Just ask. And what he's looking for is not just for you to come, not just for you to ask those questions, but for you to simply believe in him. And we like to look at that and think, well, that's a one-time event. Well, that's true. It's kind of like being born. You're born just once, but then you're learning to learn to live. And that's kind of what faith and belief in Christ is. You believe in him, and then you're going to learn to walk by faith. And that's a different way of living, walking by faith, living by faith. And so maybe you need to come to that initial moment of faith and believe in Christ, but maybe you need to keep on believing in Christ and growing in him, seeing what God can do. I wonder how John got this story because John wasn't there. It's a quiet story. It just seems like there's just two of them. Well, we know from the rest of the story that Nicodemus probably wandered off from this conversation and did some serious soul thinking because that's what Jesus wants you to do is think. He wants you to think. And so Nicodemus probably went home and thought pondered. We don't hear about him throughout the rest of the story until you get to the very end. There at the foot of Christ, helping Joseph of Arimathea, is this brother named Nicodemus. He has come to faith in Christ. And I'm sure he's standing there underneath the foot of the son of man who's hanging on a tree, and he recalls, ah, the son of man must be lifted up. And if you look to him, you'll have eternal life. And then sometime down the road, I don't know however many years, John is putting together his gospel. And John sits down with brother Nick. He says, Nick, what, did, what is your conversation with Jesus like? And Nicodemus says, let me tell you how that went down. I opened up with rabbi. We know that you are a great teacher and you do these wonderful things. No one can come, no one can do these things except 
that they're from God. And this is what Jesus said to me. And then this is what I said to him. And then he dropped this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And John said, whoa, whoa, slow down. I gotta make sure I get that right. What did you say? And he writes it down. And we have this story from the pen of John, from the mouth of Nicodemus, recalling what it takes for us to have eternal life.